This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. Welcome to part two of the Dragonfire commentary from the Doctor Who podcast. Now, joining me here, I have James. Hello, James. Hello, Tom. Hello, everybody. Ha-ha. Um, and now, unfortunately, we have no idea what Trev and Michelle have said during no. episode one. So if there's any repetition, then we apologise profusely. So if you'd like to join in with us, we're going to go down, we're going to count down from three and then press play. So it'll be three, two, one, play. So three, two, one, play. Hey. And here we go. And I think it's traditional when Doctor Who podcasters start doing commentaries to make a comment or two about the opening theme tune and uh, and, and also the, the title sequence. And I have to say, possibly contrary to, to popular fan opinion, I really quite like both, Tom. Hmm. There's a lot of movement in these titles. Uh, I, I think when we think about the time tunnel effect, then it's great, but it's great that you're moving along, and the Starfield effect too. But that you're very much moving through one axis, and this actually has the camera moving around. The only part that I have an issue with is this the wink. with the wink, yeah. um, which is which is all well and good. But I get the feeling that it was something that McCoy maybe had um, decided to do rather than being directed to do. But I wonder here we if that's it. true. I wonder if that's true. It it, it certainly. Fits in quite nicely with the tone of Sylvester McCoy's first season, of course, this this being the last story of the first season. And it's mm. all very pantomime and, and so on. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, the opening titles and the sequence is probably the best thing about this story, full stop. Oh, the, of course, <laughs> but of course you're missing Bonnie Langford. And here she is. Actually focus on what she's doing. She's actually Screaming. acting. Well, she's, she's screaming there because she's been told to, but she's actually acting. It's all in the face. It's all in the body. It's actually quite... It's, it's, I'd say it's relatively understated. Um, do, you want to do, the, do you want to provide the explanation as to what's going on here? Oh, I'd, I'd love to. Unfortunately, I haven't got a clue, and I don't think anybody else has either. And, um, of okay. course, this is the famous cliffhanger that I'm absolutely certain that Trevor and Michelle discussed when, um, when they were commentating on part one. And I'm not sure whether you get a shot of it here in this episode, but you do see this kind of chasm. There you are. That's the shot I'm, I'm looking at. And there is no discernible ledge mm. uh, for, for the Doctor to find a bit of a safe foothold on. And yet the next time we see... The Doctor, not only is Glitz there, but he's, he's, he's just gradually lowering himself to safety. So yeah. not so much a cliffhanger after all, really. Well, here's the thing. If you go back to that shot, so now you can see that just down there at about seven o'clock, there is actually a ledge with a little ha with a handrail, um, which, it, it, which, which makes me wonder, why did the Doctor not just go down a level and walk along? Um, but, but, there again, but then again, you can't see it in that shot. No, there you are. Now, and that was the literal cliffhanger in, uh, in part one. And it, it's not just the fact that it's difficult to see um, a, a ledge. It's also, you know, what, what was he doing? You know, what was he thinking? Um, I, I just don't think that's really conveyed very well in the way the the story was told. But um, but Iceworld, and again going back to the beginning of the episode, um, I, I think is is quite a nice visual image at least. It it kind of reminds me of a cross between Hoth, 
Krypton and Iceland. You know, the the the, the, um, the freezer supermarket. Uh, that, just... make, that makes sense to me. I mean, when you think about this, actually looks a lot, looks a lot like the TARDIS console as well. That little ice sculpture there. Um, mm, mm. But when you say Superman, there are there are, later on in the in this episode, there's a very direct quotation of Superman. Yes, uh, there when is. They're in the ice crest, when they're in the ice crest caves and they're learning about uh, uh, the, the escaped criminals, all very Superman too. It must be mm. said. Um, lots of lots of uh, Germanic influence in the costumes there. All very World War One. Oh, do you know I hadn't thought about that? But you're absolutely right. And mm. I, I guess, of course, it's it's a fairly fascist regime that Kane is running, and therefore it's uh, it's quite appropriate. But uh, I I still can't really get into this story because um, it's it's fundamentally quite a dark tale um, that it wants to tell and yet the way the the lines are written and, and this scene exemplifies it I mean this this is absolute mm. farce it's 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 buffoonery <laughs> in ex- now, now just just to give you an idea of how much this television program has changed imagine William Hartnell doing that now I mean it's uh, you know it's everyone says it's a one big story but uh, there's some scenes like this that very clearly root the doctor or the version of the doctor we're we're seeing in their own era well i think you're right the the thing i see here is that the show has become a little arrogant it's it's begun to expect this the the viewers to be as clever as the actual people who make it now this is just now this is just before doctor who was being made by fans for fans at this hmm. point at this point doctor who's being made by people who think they are uh, forgive me a little cleverer than they a, a little cleverer than they actually are now they're cleverer than i am because they actually get to make tv but the references that are shoehorned into this the way that it's actually laid out just seems very how can I put this? It just—it seems very much as if it's being pushed together, and and it's almost—it's almost—it's almost like it's like someone's showing off. Hmm. Um, but, hmm. but at the same, you know, but at the same time, I, I you know I, I'm I was I was older when I was watching this. I was way into my teens when this came out, um, and so I was a little bit too old to see it on the ch- on the level of a child. And I was never and I was and I wasn't the age I am now, so I could try and appreciate it as a piece of television. So it was just confusing. To be honest with you, <laughs> well, it's certainly. I mean, the whole premise of Dragonfire. It's weird because it's got the air of a children's story, and, and I think certainly one of the criticisms that's often levelled at this season is that it's Doctor Who dumbed down, and you know, the, 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 on being on the trail of a dragon with Ace and Mel basically coming across as excited teenagers or, or, or children. Um, you know, it, it's trying to tell a very dark story in a very child-friendly way, and you can say on both counts, I think, that it doesn't quite live up to the um, to the objectives uh, that the production crew were were were, um, were aiming to achieve. I'm I'm also interested in in, in what you said a little a little while ago concerning vans making Doctor Who, because of course, when Russell T Davis brought the show back, it was very much a case of. Um, mm. You know, a long-term fan making a very, very successful show. Uh, this is Andrew Cartmel's first season as script editor, and mm. I, I don't think his fingerprints are, are particularly evident uh, until the next season. Um, mm. I, I think the one thing that is consistent throughout this, and I'm going to say at least one thing positive here, and that's Sylvester McCoy. Now, I, I've been watching a couple of his stories recently, um, some really bad stories, I think, and yet his performance is really, really good. And it's really consistent. You know, the, the final season, season 26, all, all, all McCoy does is really pitch the Doctor in a slightly darker tone. It, it, it's not a huge difference to the Doctor that you see here in Dragonfire. Um, ah. 
God, I'm, listen, I'm listening to I'm listening, but this is the beginning. Of, this is the oddest scene in Doctor Who history. But go on, please, go on. Oh, is this the... Um, yes, this is where it goes into hitchhikers almost and uh, into a territory that Doctor Who very, very rarely goes into because this is more like a sketch show, frankly, isn't it? Hmm. Exactly so, but this, but this is my, this, but this is my contention with this particular, with this particular story. It all, there seems to be very, very little linking people together. But this is interesting because it's crediting the audience with a level of intelligence. Now, I don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Doctor Who fans aren't bright. We are. I think I, I don't think we are. I'd like to think, in my arrogant way, that we're actually very intelligent. But when I, in my, in my early teens, watching this, I thought, what on earth is going on? But all that. But now it makes perfect sense. It, oh, it, please it, explain it, it to me, then. Please explain it to me. Oh, okay. So the uh, the doctor approaches the, the doctor approaches the guard. Um, the guard is, is is unexpectedly intelligent, and they have this discussion about metaphysics. Um, and of course, it, it ends in the deathless line that the semiotic thickness of a performed text varies according to the redundancy of its, of its auxiliary performance <laughs> codes, um, which is which is fantastic. But all it's really saying is that the uh, the signs and signifiers that you see inside a particular inside a particular scene vary according to how well how how often they're layered. So, for instance, if you see City of Death is a good example. If you look at um, the henchmen, the henchmen are straight out of a thirties movie, so they're behaving like a thirty, like they're like they're in a thirties movie. That makes sense. But then you put that up against two guys dressed as students, i.e., the Doctor and Romana. The Doctor is like a postgraduate student. Romana is still a schoolgirl, and then their behaviour becomes a little different. So, so what you have there is semiotic thickness, i.e., signs and signifiers being layered and then creating a third meaning. I'm not entirely certain. I'm enlightened, but thank you anyway. Um, <laughs> my, 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 in- <laughs> my instant reaction is, yeah, but what a rubbish guard! <laughs> Quite so. <laughs> you know, Quite so. It, it does. It does seem to me to be a bit of a of a pantomime, a bit of a stage show. And um, I mean, e- even even this set. I mean, we've, we've we've moved on a little bit now. I mean, I love the fluffy dice it's uh, the, in, the, in, in the back of. Pardon? It's the Millennium Falcon, but British. Well, pretty much, yeah. Or it's at least the, a very cheap version of it. It probably is Andrew Cartmill's shed or something. But it's uh, I, I do quite like this scene as well. But even even the positions they're taking up there. I mean, there was a number of conversations within the Millennium Falcon cockpit that took place with Luke bending down, mm. with Han Solo sitting where Glitz is, and mm-hmm. that's that's an almost carbon copy uh, yeah. of that. Whether or not it's deliberate or not is anyone's guess. Exactly. So, listen for five. Po- but then again, for five points, uh, which <laughs> movie is Patricia Quinn? Is that right? Uh, yes. Best known for. I shall consult my reference guide. Um, it's I just the no jump idea. to the left. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you. No idea. Um, she played Magenta in the original Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, I've, I saw half of that film and couldn't continue with it. <laughs> so that, <laughs> it's a way and life. I have to admit, this 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 actually feels a little bit like Rocky Horror in certain places, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's it's really weird. I mean, I, I think uh, out of all of the stories in this season, I would have to say that Dragonfire is probably my favourite. Mm. And I mean, that's that's a positive sounding thing, but I I, I pretty much detest the remainder of the stories. Um, but for some reason. Dragonfire left me with happy memories of watching it on trans on, on transmission, and the thing that got me was was the quest. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I really like the idea of having multiple levels uh, mm. within an internal cold um, structure or city, uh, despite 
the fact that it's only got about 20 um, inhabitants. And and I think it gen- generally works. But when I watched it again, you know, I watched this this morning just uh, just before I was going to be recording with you, Tom. You I, I was astounded by how bad this this uh, this is dated. And um, I, I think this is also probably Sophie Aldred's worst performance ever. I mean, it, it's, it's not it's not bad. Oh, it's absolutely. In fact, I'm not sure whether it is. I don't know whether they recorded an order in in, in those days or not. But um, I think the lines she's given yeah. are atrocious as well. And she she does what she can do. It stuns me to think that this story was written by the same guy who wrote Curse of Fenric a couple of years later. Well, it's. It, I understand what you're saying. This is good though because we we've got some. So we had to just have some heavy acting. Uh, there's some creeping acting as they come through the door, but watch out! There's a bit of a weird thing going on here. Can you just put, can can you see at any point that this door locks or sh- or is is pulled shut in any particularly strong way? I certainly haven't noticed it before, but um, we can we can certainly pay attention to it now hmm. and um, quickly run very fast and through the door, bang! No, no there is in. no lock. You are you are you are quite correct. Right. Okay. So How very what strange. we're saying then is in this next scene that's that's taking place. Then, quite frankly, the creature could just obviously pull the door open rather than no, trying indeed, to cut through it. Indeed. <laughs> and and again, getting a welding torch up the bottom is is much more in line with the Ken Campbell Roadshow, I think, as opposed to um, Doctor Who. But yes. uh, whether it works or not, it, it's quite funny now. You're looking through all this effort that that dragon is going to to open a door, and quite frankly, could have just opened it. Yeah, good point, Tom. Well, but, 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 oh, Bonnie falling out. Oh no, not here. But I, I think Bonnie. I know. I know the scene you're thinking of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's about to do it. This is the last time, uh, allegedly, that a companion does this. Falls over for no apparent reason. So yes. nice one, Bonnie. But even well, still, not only does she fall over, she almost loses consciousness. If you listen to the script, I think. I think um, Ace says, "Oh, wake up, wake up!" Mm. So, so you're, you're, like, make some yes. noise so the big so, so Frankenstein can come and get us. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, inter- it's interesting watching these um, these cryogenically frozen soldiers, Glitz's former crew, walk as well. Because oh, if, you, if you listen, yep. there she goes. Yeah, if you listen to it with the sounds up, mm. then they've got the same drum uh, beats that the new Cybermen have as well. You know, they, whenever <laughs> they move around, you've just got the two tone drums. Boom. Boom, boom, boom. And they're also remarkably thick. Look, because just as well that those walkways and stairs are not see-through, isn't it? <laughs> well, oh, but it, look, it's Doctor Who, willing suspension of disbelief. But at the same time, <laughs> I, I've, I've got to say, though, you know, we haven't really seen too much of it here, or at least we haven't commented much on it, but Bonnie Langford's performance was the best that she could give, given the material that she was working with and given the circumstances in which she was delivering it. I, I, I certainly agree that she was really poorly served by the lines she was given. Uh, but if you look back in, um, in episode one, particularly the canteen scene, um, the it, it, it's appalling. It is appalling, and her performance is bad as well. I'm, whether or not she can I, I really do I, any better, I won't hear that. I won't. I, I won't hear that for a moment. I mean, what I notice with her is that, or what I believe with Bonnie Langford is that she uh, exists at the, at a crossroads point. Um, she comes from a very well established theatre uh, tradition. Um, and the transition from theatre to television is very well established. You become a star, you know, you, you work, you learn how to work a stage, and so on. That perhaps you transfer, you make the transfer into television, maybe into films. So she was f- following a, ca- a career trajectory that was well known. But unfortunately, by 1988, um, this had, ch- or by the time that this was being made, the, the way that actors and career trajectories were perceived had totally changed. It was a whole different ballgame. And she just, she, I think she was just unfortunate 
enough to have come from the old guard when we were actually beginning to work with the new. Quite possibly, but I still thought she was terrible. Oh, <laughs> I, I have so to wrong. say, and, and and this and this story. I mean, don't get me wrong. You look you look at her most recent stuff, certainly for Big Finish, and her acting talents are very very obvious and very evident. But I don't oh, yeah. think I don't think Dragonfire shows what she can do particularly well. I, I I'm very interested in this chap or, or the chap that. Um, uh, Patricia Osoba. Quinn is speaking to Tony Osoba, yes, of course, was also in Destiny of the Daleks uh, mm-hmm. as, as a Mavellan. And um, I know he's still very into um, the Doctor Who scene and very interested. He's still acting and working. And, uh, of course, um, most people will probably remember him playing McLaren uh, from, from, from Porridge. Porridge. yeah. Right, now, look, here we go, though. Look, ch- ch- check Bonnie out. She has almost, she's got no lines in this, or very few lines. And no liquid at all in that cup. But, but yeah. how well she's acting. And, okay, and Sophie Aldred, lest we forget, remains a, a beautiful person, but is heart-stoppingly beautiful at this point in her life. Um, so, but, but unfortunately, I don't think I still don't think I was too interested in girls. But look at that! How gorgeous! That's very sexist. Very sorry. But again, um, <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with that point. So I think you made it beautifully. No, thank you very much. <laughs> um, but but look, but if we can get another shot of Bonnie, it's just the fact that she's reacting so well. I just think poodle. I can't help oh, it. It's, it's, a, it's an accident of the fashion of the day, to be honest. Oh, um, no, I do. I know. And I think that's one of the things about uh, Dragonfire. It hasn't dated particularly well, uh, either in the language which uh, the characters use oh. or indeed the way the way that they look. But um, that scene that we saw, which is where Ace reveals her real name is Dorothy, which, you know, has been picked up on in non-canonical, well, you know, as a controversial word, um, Doctor <laughs> Who, i.e. books, and certainly Big Finish also have um, started, they went through a period of using her surname. But that's where it all started. Uh, there was a, a very brief scene with um, with Bonnie Langford, with Mel there, where she says her name was Dorothy. And I don't believe it's mentioned again until Curse of Femric. Well, it's all, it, well, it's all very Wizard of Oz. Oh, look, a big time storm came and took me to a place with tin men mm. and scarecrows and lions. Oh, I ab- am Dorothy. <laughs> well, one of the other things about this this uh, story I find incredulous is that the, the speed at which relationships are formed. Now, I know it's a three-part story, and I know the writers can't waste time trying to establish you know, friendships and so on, but you look at the way that they do it now in modern-day TV series, and Russell T. Davis does it very quickly he puts two characters we've wow. never met before together and you can believe it whereas I, I i find the closeness that mel and ace have very very false well this is interesting you say a very interesting thing um what i'd suggest to you is that television then and now are two very different beasts now oh, no question. I, I watched um a couple of the last episode of the apprentice with my partner sarah last uh, last night um and we watched shows like the x factor and the voice and britain's oh, got dear. talent and what you'll be and the only way is essex <laughs> and what you're being asked to do is to engage with characters they are real but you know plasticized characters on many different levels certainly more than were apparent in this particular episode of Doctor Who. I mean, this is very stagey. There's Glitz, there's Ace, there's the Doctor, there's Mel. But we only know a little, a very little bit about either of them. And one would argue that we know the least about the Doctor. But in modern TV, we're used to engaging with characters on many more levels immediately. In, in fact, it could be argued that we, we engage with tele- television characters in the way that we engage with real characters. I.e., what did that look mean? What did that glance mean? Yeah. What, did that, what, did that, what did that movement yeah. mean? And TV is edited and cut and shot to give us that information. So, for I, instance... I, yeah. 
I, I know we, I know what you mean, but it seems to me Doctor Who took a step backwards because you look at Doctor Who made twenty years prior to this, and mm. you know you can engage with Liz Shaw, you can engage with, or I can anyway, Katie Manning's character, um, whose name Joe Grant, of course. Don't know how I forgot that, but <laughs> it was very easy to empathise with them, and yet I find it incredibly hard to empathise with Glitz. Although I do find him a very interesting character, uh, and Mel, uh, I never ever had any emotional investment in at all. Um, because she wasn't but I, Mel, she was Bonnie Langford. Yeah, <laughs> well, she was Mel throughout the periods of um, time she was within Doctor Who. Mm. <laughs> what do you think of this um, this creature, the, 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 the dragon? Despite the fact that it's it's you know he's got massive great spotlights on it and would look a hundred times better, you know, in, in a slightly darker studio. Well, you made the, you, you made the comparison earlier on. If this was a Hartnell style monster and this was the Web Planet, it would look fine. <laughs> do you know what? Point, it's the best Zabi I've seen. You're right. Exactly that. <laughs> Um, but what, I'm, what what I've the problem I've got with this is at this point people are expect um, it, it almost feels as if the show is expecting um, Doctor Who fans to engage in the conceit that well this is Doctor Who this you know some things we're pushing the boundaries with other things you must accept as tropes of the show but the fact of the matter is the thing which kept Doctor Who going beyond year two was the fact that the stories were really very good and they pushed and they did push boundaries and they were inventive this in places just says well we're going to be a bit lazy with the way we're writing this Um, (laughs) possibly possibly although maybe i'm getting that wrong but it it just it does feel like a substandard doctor who story the performance the performances that are being given are as good as they can be given what the people are are being asked to work with but i think i agree with you i think i agree with you there i mean i mean you look at edward peel he's uh kane you know he he was he he's one of the more memorable villains i think uh, from from this season, certainly for me, I remembered. I mean, I I, I love the the hands on the cheeks and uh, you know the way that he kills people. That to me is very Doctor Who, and it's very it's very Sutek. Yeah, oh, here we go. are, Superman two. I know into the, into the ice crystals and boom. Oh, and it's Clark um, Kent's mum. <laughs> Clark Kent's mum. What do we know about? Okay, so do we do we know that about this woman here? Um, I forget her name. Let me just have a quick check because I have some reference materials around me. Let's see, Daphne Oxenford, Daphne oh. Oxenford, um, who for many for a generation of children, uh, post-war children, is known as the woman who says, "Are we sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin." Oh, really? That was her. Absolutely, that's, that's her. Wow, Daphne stunning. Oxenford. Um, but then again, again, even in the physical acting, it's all about Bonnie and it's all about Sylvester. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> there. Yes, sorry, apologies for that. Always, always switch your phones to silent. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? Just looking at the, um, the the image of the ice cave there with the four the four lead actors, it was suddenly thrown an image of uh, Amy and the Doctor, Rory and uh, and River Song. You know, this is this is the story with 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 four main characters in it, really, isn't it? It's a crowded TARDIS job. No, it's, it's quite just... good. It's the only one McCoy really got. Now I'm liking this thing here. With as I say, this prop very much to me looks like a, t- a version of the TARDIS console. But there's something wrong. If Kane is so hugely sensitive to heat, as as we're led to believe, it should be that when he touches someone who's warm, that he's like touching, <laughs> sticking his hand in a pot in a pot of boiling water. So uh, I don't know. You know, you've got to turn some things off, I guess. Ow! Oh, well, perhaps, perhaps, but maybe he manages to maintain his minus one hundred ninety-three temperature uh long enough to kill a certain number of his um <laughs> of, of his colleagues use your but, powers uh, wisely yes yeah his, his, his retention policy is not particularly good is it in terms of staff so no 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 
There we go. But, I mean, I, I think this looks quite good. I mean, it, if, if you accept that most of 80s television was overlit, then I think this is this is pretty good. I, I could buy the backdrop there as, as, as ice, as opposed to cellophane or plastic or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I'm liking it. But again, I'm just looking at the, the response acting from Bonnie. It's very, very good. What, she's um, just watching? Well, she's just watching, but... You, you, look at, you look at Tony Selby. That's where you get some real depth of uh, quality acting there. Now, he, he's been in practically every sitcom that the BBC have produced since goodness <laughs> knows when. And the one that really sticks, uh, sticks in the mind is The Good Life. And uh, he, he's just a really, really good character actor. And... I, I think he worked far better in Trial of a Time Lord, certainly. But at the same time, I still got a bit of a buzz uh, when when I saw him back in the cafe scene in episode one. Music box head for the dragon there. What on earth's going on? And I he's like, I like it. Look at look at look at that prop. That's really quite well made, don't you think? Um, no, no, obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> I've I, I always had good memories of the dragon as well. Oh. I, here we go. This is this is the end of the underwater men underwater menace. Nothing yeah. in the world can stop me now. Oh, it's funny. I had Ooh. shades of um of of, of uh, John Normington's character in Caves of Androzani there as well, where he he looked at the camera and come up with some kind of um some kind of remember memorable speech. But uh, yeah, all very pantomime. Uh, whether or not it's enjoyable pantomime, I think very much depends on your point of view. Um, I I can watch this as a piece of Doctor Who. I can't really enjoy it as a piece of good 80s Doctor Who. Um, and most of the time I am appalled at the choices made. But but it's, it's, a lot, it's been a lot of fun revisiting it and certainly talking through it with you, Tom, has made it infinitely more bearable. I think, to go back to that deathless quote, um, the perceived thickness of semiotic text, there are more layers to this than we might be able to discern <laughs> right now because we're not film students, we're not media studies students, and um, at the point at which this, this is being made, media studies is being defined. So it's it's interesting. I think I'm... I, I don't know. My, my, my visceral reaction to it is like, yeah, I prefer Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Um, my... My considered reaction is I'd be I'd have been pleased to be associated with it. Is it the best story Doctor Who ever told? No. Is no. it the best story that Sylvester <laughs> McCoy ever told? No. no. Are there worst examples of Doctor Who? Yes. We can have that we can have that conversation <laughs> on another day. I'm sure we will. Thank you very much for tuning in everyone. And next time, Lisa will be back for part three with none other than Ian. Good luck, guys. Bye bye. Bye for now. That was the Doctor Who Podcast which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.